First John chapter three. Do want to take just a second before we get started and tell all of you thank you for your patience with everything that's going on in here. We probably still have another six weeks of installing windows, getting the right size blinds in here, carpet, all of the rest. So it's going to be messy for a while. Um, And one of the things that you all have to understand is most of what is happening inside the sanctuary is being donated by our contractor. And so when they're being gracious with so much, uh, it's really hard for me to follow along behind them and nitpick what they have and have not vacuumed at the end of the day. Um, so I, I'm okay with a mess for a while if we get a, uh, a clean place uh, to worship in the end. And, and really, I, I can't wait till it's all done and we can talk through how the Lord has provided so graciously uh, during this time. But thank you is the intent for being patient uh, with all of this. All right, First John chapter 3, and we're going to be in verse 3 specifically today. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, we're so thankful that you're able to be here. There is, in fact, in front of you, in the, in the seat in front of you, a copy of the Bible. That is our gift to you, and First John is close to the end. It's right behind Revelation, uh, in front of Revelation, rather. And so if you could turn there, First John chapter 3. Well, friends, one of the great realities of all of our lives in varying ways are the mountaintop experiences that we have in life, Uh, the the enjoyment we get uh, when we see the wonders of the Lord work out in our own lives and in our own generation. And really, we find in the Bible a record of this theme of mountaintop type of experience. Mountains often had a significant role in God's dealing with his people. It was on the mountains of Ararat that Noah's ark came to rest after the flood. One of the mountains in the region of Moriah, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And it was there that God provided a substitutionary sacrifice. And Later, on that same mountain, Solomon would build his temple. And that is the place where substitutionary sacrifices would take place until the coming of Christ. On on Mount Sinai, God revealed his character to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. On Mount Carmel, Elijah challenged the false prophets of Baal to a contest to see which God would answer by fire. And it was back to Mount Oreb, or to Mount Sinai, that God would meet Elijah as he ran for his life. And Elijah uh, met him there in that gentle whisper or still small voice. Jesus taught his disciples on the Mount of Olives and he was transfigured on a mountain. And one of the verses that we read, our New Testament verse, deals with the reality of what happened when he came down from that mountain. And of course, we can't forget Mount Zion, the place where King David built His city where God would dwell with His people. And Revelation speaks of a Mount Zion as well. A place where we will dwell with Him eternally. We all like the mountaintop sermons. Uh, Even if the sermon isn't going to stay faithful to the text, the mountaintop texts seem to be where everybody runs if they're going to rah-rah a group of people. Because, man, we just like that. Um, But there is this reality of all mountaintop experiences, this side of heaven, and that is that we have to come down from them. We have to actually face the world as it is. And again, that's what uh, Brother David read for us this morning. As Jesus' transfiguration had come to a close, there He meets with a boy possessed in the valley. He has to face the world in the power of the evil one. And yet Jesus shows that His power is greater even still. We have to face the 
reality of the norms of living in a fallen world, a world that lies in the power of the evil one as we come down from the mountaintop. Well, beloved, I want to encourage you, I think, for the, very, the, the past two sermons, I know that I took a break in between, and I regretted that, but the past two, and I think Braxton, he did a fantastic job there, but uh, the, very, the, the last two verses that we've dealt with in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, have been in a very real sense, the mountaintop experience for one who names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in these two verses that we have been told that God has lavished His love upon us, that we are, our identity is, a group of people who are the called children of God. Now I can think of nothing greater to encourage you this morning than that in spite of who you are, you, because of the lavishing of the love of God alone, are now identified in the economy of eternity as the called children of God. And John goes on in verse 2 to remind us of the glorious eternal identity that we will one day face. That we are children of God now. That there's not a time in the future where we will be more children of God than we are today. We are fully relationally children of God at this very moment. And yet we can't conceive of the future reality we will enjoy in glory. But there is coming a day when we who are in Christ, who have been born of the Spirit, who are called children of God, will remain in glory forever because we will see Jesus as He is. We will be like Him. We will be glorified. And nothing will ever change that. We've been to the mountaintop. He has shown us unexpected things. If if your salvation is something that you have expected all of your life, then I promise you, you aren't understanding the fullness of your salvation. Because to come to a right understanding of what Jesus has done for you and who you really are apart from His grace, our salvation, our being called children of God is something altogether marvelous and unexpected. There are things that we don't really necessarily in the day in and day out experience now. We, 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 we experience the drudgery of living in a life that is in the power of the evil one. But we have been given, in verses 1 and 2, the authority to live our lives in light of glory. What a mountaintop that has been. And yet, after last Sunday... We went back to our normal lives. Here we are a week later. A week has passed since we've considered the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And yet, if I were to ask each one of you today, I bet that a lot of what your week was like this past week was much similar to every week that preceded. Um, Difficult, hard work. You see, we're confronted with the reality that before we enter the glorious nature of eternity of seeing Jesus, we will live a life in the flesh. We will live a life on the earth. A life in the fallen earth that is in the power of the evil one. A world that does not know Jesus and does not know us. We will live a life continuing in some sense to battle our old nature. We will one day be in glory. But the difficulty that we have to face today and tomorrow and every day until His coming is that we still live in the here and now. We seemingly have come down from the mountaintop. Being in this world is anticlimactic almost every day. But I I want to be careful this morning as we come, as as we see that verses 1 and 2 really are our mountaintop. And if you're a note taker in your Bible, it makes me cringe. My wife's one of those people. Um, You can circle verses 1 and 2 and write mountaintop. Because it's beautiful from there. But I want us to be careful not to think as we come into verse 3 that it is something less. 
that as, as we have come to the edge of verse 2, that we drop off into the valley of verse 3. That is not the way we should read this verse. We, we, we must see verse 3 actually as more like the whole trajectory of why we were given verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Verse 3 is the natural outcome of verse, verses 1 and 2. And in some respect, if we live our lives as difficult as they may be, in light of verses 1 and 2, in the command, in the reality, in the argument of verse 3, we will live the mountaintop experience every day of our lives, no matter how hard they are. It is with that joy that I ask you to rise to your feet this morning. And do honor to the reading of God's Word. We'll begin again in verse 28. John writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But, when we, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning and we acknowledge the reality that we have taken verse 3 far too lightly in our own personal lives. Father, I ask that you would write this verse onto not just our minds, but the conscience of our heart that we would live under the weight of your word, and that you would receive glory from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be, be seated. Again, we all love that mountaintop experience, but again, we must see that verses 1 and 2 have really just prepared us to understand verse 3. If you remember the mountaintop experiences of, of Jesus' transfiguration, there's Peter and he says, as Christ is being transfigured, he, said, he says, let, let us build three tabernacles. Let us camp here. Let us stay here. But Jesus knew better. He knew that there was work to be done, that redemption must be accomplished in the world that was ravaged by sin. And so we, we must see that our mountaintop knowledge in the same way of our glorious identity, that we have been transformed not by our own decisions, not by our own morality, not by our own goodness, not by our own religion, but we have been transformed because God lavished His love upon us and we are called children of God. Seeing our identity change before our very eyes in verses 1 and 2 should not cause us to say, well, let's just build a camp there and go on living our lives however we please. No, we must come down from that mountaintop to live out the reality of what we have just seen. We are to take verses 1 and 2 with us wherever we go, no doubt, but we are to put them in shoe leather and into practice. We, we, we have been given a vision of glory, but here with this one connecting word, and, it is linked to the reality that we must relate verses 1 and 2 to all of our lives. What we do in our lives right now, purifying ourselves for His glory, matters eternally. Some people have this disconnected view of what salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is. That we come to salvation by grace alone and then somehow one day we will be in glory and it really doesn't matter what we do in between. But friends, that is not true. Verse 3 stands to tell us this morning that everything we do in this life does have consequence. As R.C. Sproul rightly said, right now counts forever. 
This one connecting word, and John makes a bold declaration about our lives in the body of Christ. He says, hold on, technical difficulties. He says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know what there isn't in that text? There's not a lot of room for discussion and debate. John doesn't leave much room in the way that he has written here under the inspiration of the Spirit, so it's really God's writing, to argue out what this might and might not really mean for the Christian. There is only this reality that if we have truly understood verses 1 and 2, then every one of us who have come to rest in the glories that Christ has given us by His love, that we will purify ourselves even as He is pure. Our position as called children of God, eternally loved of the Father, we are children now. We are. Redeemed of God. And one day, we will see Him in glory. If we really believe those things, then we will again purify ourselves even as He is pure. What he's saying is that if you believe this, if you believe that the love of God has been lavished upon you such that you are called children of God and that one day you will be in glory, then as sure as night follows day and day follows Night, so it will be that you will seek to live a righteous, a pure life in your own generation. This one verse is arresting. If we hear it rightly, it's convicting, it's sobering, it's magnificent, and it's altogether true. It's really saying the same thing that James writes in James chapter 2, verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? John and James are really aiming at the same target here. They're actually writing, believe it or not, under the inspiration of the same spirit. What is being said is that faith that does not result in works is not saving faith at all. Now, we can't misinterpret that, as many have, to mean that our works produce faith. That's, that's to get the, the, a horse, the cart before the horse. What is being said here is that the faith that only God can bestow upon us results in works that God has prepared beforehand that He should receive the glory for them. What John is saying is that a profession of faith that does not result in what verse 3 talks about is then a false profession of faith. If we say that we are headed for glory, but we are not actively seeking to purify our lives, our profession is at best on shaky Grounds. You see, our profession is not be, to be tested by who we say that we are, but it is to be tested by the results of our faith in our life. It is a faith that God gives that ultimately issues out in consequential living for His glory. The reason why we struggle in this life so much, I believe, is not because we don't try hard enough to do good works. And there are entire groups of people, and let's pray for them in our heart at this very second, that are gathered this morning who believe in their heart of hearts that if they do just enough good things, God will receive them in. That faith will come as a result of works, and that's a lie. There's an old country song. Uh, Daddies never love their children every now and then. I'm relating to some of y'all this morning in this, I know. Used to drive me nuts and still does when I hear it. There is a lyric in that song, and I'm probably going to botch it, that says uh, that he had a dream that he stood outside the pearly gates, and if they knew half the things he'd done, uh, there there had to have been a, a mistake. They'd never let him in because it's all based on our works. That is a misunderstanding of how eternity and entering heaven works. We don't enter heaven 
by our works. We are gained, we, we gain access into eternity because of the faith that we have in the finished work of Christ. And we have that faith by grace alone. And that faith then goes on to produce the works. We're not hoping against hope that maybe God's tabulating up the nice things we've done for our neighbor and he's going to let us slip in under the wire. It's not the gospel. That's damnable religion. It is the reality then. Why? why? If I were to ask everyone to file by the microphone this morning down here and just say, do you feel confident that you have... You have arrived at holiness sufficiently. That you have given enough of yourself to live a holy life. If one of you would say yes, then we'd have to have a sermon next week on arrogance. (laughs) Because none of us live the holy life that we know we should. None of us looking at Jesus Christ can say, yes, we've lived the way that we really want to live. Why? I don't believe it's because we haven't tried hard enough. That we haven't just rah-rahed at one another on the mountaintop experience uh, uh, sufficiently. I believe the reason why we don't walk in holiness is because we don't live in the identity that God has given us. I, I believe the reason why the church is so impotent to do the good works that she is called to do in our society is not because a bunch of academics haven't come up with the right system to tell us how to live morally. The reason we don't live morally is because of this. Because we don't know our doctrine. Because we only gain a right identity of God and of ourselves by clear doctrine. And so the reason we don't see a church that is living the life uh, on fire for the glory of God, abandoned to self, is because we ultimately have failed to hold on to substantial doctrine. And friends, I want to tell you that this, the, the Christian church in America and all around the world being devoid of doctrine is really a problem that has been going on as long as anybody in this room has been alive. And, and so the problem presents itself to the church today when we come and we say, well, I want to live the faith that I was taught But if that faith isn't rooted in the doctrine once for all delivered to the saints, then ultimately it leads into weak Christian living. Friends, some of you have been blessed with good doctrine. But so many of us come from a position of not knowing doctrine well. And you know what happens when we don't know doctrine well? Some good old boy who's very well-intentioned will get up in this pulpit and just tell us how to live. You see, the Christian church for the better part of 150 years has been aiming at the fruit detached from the root. The church has been aiming at the outworking of wanting to see the church flourish while cutting off the entire tree from the vital life-giving doctrines of grace that God has bestowed upon His church. And what results in light of that is disaster. For years, the church has aimed at morality and ethics and behavior. We'll even get on on CNN and we will debate with people who are dead in their trespasses and sins about whether or not we can come together and agree ethically on how the world should work. But friends, here's the reality. Our lost neighbor, until they come to Christ, do not get to traffic in verses 1 and 2. They're not headed for glory. They're headed for hell. And so their ethic, their worldview, how they'll live, their morality will be largely different from ours. Because there's nothing in this world, there's nothing in this life that is ultimately going to satisfy someone that has been promised eternal glory. And won't work. Think about it, friends. Look at the fruit today. And, and, and listen to what is being said all over the place. You don't have to take my word for it. People will defend this idea that doctrine doesn't matter. 
And then at the same time, if they're going to peddle that, and they have been for years, then they have to live with the consequence. A church that is seemingly passing from having a position of authority in the culture. We don't gain a position of authority in the culture by diluting our doctrine. We gain a position of authority by standing strong in doctrine such that people begin to flourish and that the genuine fruit of holiness results in their lives and that the world turns and looks and says, my word, God must be at work among those people. That is how we see change in our society. But alas, we live in a time hundreds of years off from the Enlightenment and the Romanticism periods and, and what we have been influenced by in those categories of thinking, and I'm not going to go into detail, but what we have bought into is this. For generations, the church was taught doctrine and to stand into those doctrines and to defend those doctrines. But what she has now is a type of belief that's, that says what you believe Yourself is good for you and nobody can correct your system of belief. You are the ultimate authority, which is a lie. And what matters about what you believe isn't whether or not what you believe is actually true. What matters about what you believe is whether you feel good about it. Whether you like it. Whether it gives you those warm and fuzzy, oh. But can I tell you this? In eternity... When we stand before the face of Christ, the Enlightenment and the, the period of the Romantics won't hold much sway. Because what will matter in that day is that we knew the truth. That we fought for it. And we defended it with everything that we had. And that our joy was not just merely to have a bunch of head knowledge, but to allow our hearts and all of our life to be conformed into the image of Christ you see, what happens as a result of losing doctrine is we, again, we lose our identity. We, we can't see who God is clearly, and we don't see who we are clearly. And then again, as I said before, to, to overcorrect in this area, instead of, of dealing with doctrine, we will appeal to a form of holiness. We will appeal to false versions of what holiness is. And, and what will end up happening is we will have individuals who will come into the church and whether it's a modern version of some sort of uh, academic system or it's just cultural morality, individuals will stand in the pulpit and they'll begin to describe holiness as a way of living that we can understand apart from who Jesus really is. Holiness will just become all of the cultural, social norms. And if you live at the pinnacle of those things, then you are a holy person. But can I tell you something? That's not holiness at all. That's to live in, a damned, in light of a damned society. You see, there's really two issues. When, when James says that faith without works is dead, that our faith will produce works, we also have to come to the conclusion that works without faith are also just as useless. That living a life that is good and moral and ethical apart from who God is, isn't really good or moral or ethical at all. Because our God is the creator and sustainer of all things. And to ignore Him in our humanity is to perpetrate cosmic rebellion. See, true holiness isn't a list of things that you do so God that will love you. True holiness is a result in our life, in the life of God's people, from all that God has done for us. True holiness is a result in our life of the wonderful doctrines of grace, the wonderful doctrines of who God is. True holiness comes into the life of an individual when they understand the attributes of Almighty God. Because we ultimately we understand who He is by our doctrine. And so naturally, we will seek to live in light of Him by faith. 
And because we know that we are bound for glory, because we know that Christ will return, because we know that He has paid for our sins, because we know that He is our advocate this very moment, because we know that we are His children now, we will then purify our lives. That's what John is saying. Holiness is not something that we strive after apart from what God has done. Holiness is a life lived in the shadows of the grace of Almighty God. Holiness is not detached from the gospel. Holiness is the natural result of the gospel. There's not some then in the body of Christ who are holy and others who are not. If we are His children now, John says, we will lead increasingly holy lives. Holiness is also not what we do so that we become righteous In fact, it's the other way around. Holiness is a result of the righteousness that we already have in Christ. Everyone who thus hopes in Him. What are we hoping in Him for? We are hoping in Him for the redemption of our souls, the cleansing of our sins, that we have positionally before the throne this very moment, righteous standing before a holy God. And we have that. He is our advocate at this very moment, pleading the blood on our behalf. And so we don't live holy lives so that somehow we gain a standing before the throne. No, we have a standing before the throne. And so we walk in holiness. That's what John is teaching. Holiness isn't act right, straighten up so that you can get to heaven. Holiness is, son, you are bound for glory. Live like it. That's what holiness is. Holiness is also not a kind of life that Christians are trying to obtain. It's not a spiritual high. It's not some gift. It's not just some experience. Holiness is a life that every Christian is called to. Again, some some would portray... Holiness is something, well, some people in the body of Christ are called to be holy. In fact, in these conversations I'm having, y'all pray for me with our missionaries. There is this glaring, obvious reality, and it's this. We have many people on the mission field today who I believe genuinely love Jesus. But through the failure of so many, we have sold out our doctrinal birthright such that these brothers and sisters who are facing great difficulty on the foreign mission field, seeking to do things for the glory of God, I have no doubt, don't understand where any of the things they're trying to do relate to the doctrines found in the Bible. And so I hear things from some of our missionaries like this. Well, some people just come to Jesus... So they can get into heaven, but they really never grow. John would say, no son, if they come to Jesus and they never grow, they're not going to heaven. Sobering reality. But friends, this is the sad reality. We're paying missionaries to go on the field and tell people, as long as you say this little prayer, you're guaranteed heaven. Do you know where that's found in the Bible? Nowhere. If you have no desire to be holy as He is holy, if you have no desire to be conformed into the image of Christ, then then John is seeking to wake the church up. Then you are not in Christ at this moment. And so what would be the encouragement to that individual? Run to Christ. Repent. Turn to Him. Seek Him. Seek to understand His Word. Holiness isn't just this this way of, of some of us coming to being, you know, polished trophies of God. And then there are the other nominal Christian. No, in fact, Peter writes of what the result is of being in Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... Again, there's that word called. You are called children of God. As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, 
I hope that by this point, in the five years of my ministry, you're not um, misunderstood about where I stand on the issue of justification. And really, here's the big thing. It doesn't matter where I stand, it matters what the Bible says. And the Bible says with clear emphasis that justification is by faith alone and it is the work of Almighty God alone. Hard stop. No argument. Now there are arguments, they're just not good ones. (laughs) But here's what's happened, uh, and I'm getting a little off my notes, so forgive me if I go back to those and I have to hunt. But here's what has happened over generations. Salvation, as the Bible records it, is monergistic. It is God alone. And then our sanctification, our growing in holiness, is actually depicted all throughout the Bible as a fight for faith, as something that is synergistic, that the Spirit enables us to do, but that we fight for. And here's what has happened in the church over the past 200 years. Those things have been flipped. And now our justification is, is synergistic and we help God get us into the kingdom. We, we do some part of the work here. But if He wants us to be holy, then He better just zap us with a big lightning bolt of holy because there's a nothing we can do about it. And we've lost the gospel entirely in that kind of thinking because that's not what Scripture teaches. The Bible teaches us that we are children of God now because we are called, because God has bestowed His grace upon us, because we heard the Gospel and we turned in repentance and faith only by the working of God removing our stony heart and giving us a heart of flesh. And now, we are all called to the life of holiness. We are all called to live in light of what Christ has done. Holiness isn't just some gift that might or might not be bestowed on the individual Christian. It's not something that we go to a conference hoping that God lets us hear from an actual good preacher where our minds expanded and all of a sudden we have capacity to live righteously. So many falsely think that we receive our, again, uh, our sanctification the same way we receive our justification. That, that ultimately... We just absorb it, and, and, and some are holy and some are not. But that misses the gospel. When we come to John here, he reminds us of who we are in verses 1 and 2. We are called children of God. We will one day be in glory. And if those two things are true, then as sure as, as day follows night, we will purify our lives. We will walk in holiness. Consider what... Uh, uh, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. If we are really in Christ, if we are really indwelt by the Spirit of God, then His Spirit is going to push us in the direction of seeing that we are not pure and we will desire purity in our lives. If we really believe verses 1 and 2, if we really believe that we are a child of God, that we are destined for glory, that we will see Jesus as He is face to face, that that we believe that He is coming again, And that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the One who will one day rule over all creation. And that He will destroy every ounce of evil in this world. Then we as Christians will live our lives trying to destroy every ounce of evil in our soul. That's what what John is saying here. So, So what is holiness? What does it mean, this purifying of ourselves. Well, one, we need to know that there is a difference between cleansing and purifying. You remember in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, John told us if we confess our sins, I think we read this this morning, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. Cleansing happens. Now, my wife could come up here and give an entire sermon, if we were egalitarian, she would, on what cleansing means. She is the cleanliest person I know on the planet. She can clean everything in our house, 
outwardly, and it still may not be pure. The, the surfaces of the countertop in the kitchen are always spotless. There have been arguments I, to my shame in our home where I've looked at my wife and said, can we just leave a dirty sock in the middle of the living room so it feels like people actually live here? Like I feel like the Better Homes and Gardens crew is about to show up at any minute and I'm going to have to gather my books up and go somewhere else so that I'm not out of place in this anyway. <laughs> Everything can be clean, but the Clatworthy home isn't pure. It's not through and through purified. Your cleansing gets, takes care of the outside. And there's a real, I think, uh, lesson here for us in the understanding of our justification that as we stand before God, we are removed of our outer filthiness and we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. And in a sense, when God looks at us, He sees us in the righteousness of Christ and we should rejoice in that. But in the flesh, we know that there is yet remaining sin. There is still an old sin nature that we war against. Now that old sin nature in the life of a true Christian is passing away, but it is an old sin nature that we still have to contend with in our lives. We still have to purify this. Because here's what happens. Purification takes the cleansing a step further. Purification is like the sterilization of the instruments that a surgeon uses to do surgery. If you're laying on a surgeon's table, you're, you don't want to know, are those instruments clean? You want to know, are they pure? Have you put those suckers in an oven and made sure that every ounce of any atom that might infect my body has been annihilated? That's what you want to know. And so purification, it deals with everything that is internal. Another image of this is found in Malachi chapter 3, speaking of the metallurgist or of God putting us into difficult situations in our lives and refining us the way a metallurgist does metal in a fire. Malachi verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, He will set as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and fire, that they will become offerings in righteousness to the Lord. To purify means not so much to clean our act up on the outside, which I think is what most people think of when we talk about holiness. We think holiness is just acting right when we get to church on Sunday morning. Boy, that guy who chews his wife out in the car on the, on the way to church on Sunday morning, but then hits the front door and is just glory hallelujah, that's a holy guy. No, it's not. Because his heart is what needs to be dealt with, not the outwardness of what we think about him. The whole, uh, to purify means to not clean up our outside, but to pursue God with our whole hearts that we might mortify our members and put sin to death in our lives. It was John Owen who rightly said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He's aiming there at the doctrine, at the idea of purification. Purify your lives. Yes, you're in Jesus. Justification has come if you have, if, if you have been born again. And we can praise God for the implication. But the Bible calls us then to go on living a holy life, eradicating sin in our life. And we must not think of purification merely in the negative. We have had our sins removed in our cleansing by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Our purification is more in the positive. It's seeking to be like Jesus. It's getting rid of everything that would dishonor Him. And it's living in light of the glory that will be revealed when we see Him as He is. Purification is seeing Jesus clearly and desiring with everything in us to behave like Him. And so none is righteous, none is holy, because none of us have been purified through and through. There is one word that we use to express purity, and it is the word Christ-like. To be Christ-like is to be purified, to be holy. And friends, again, I really believe with everything in my fiber 
That if we believe that somehow holiness or purity is something that is just passive and we just wait for God to do in our lives, then we miss what the saints of old believed and what God told them. And that is this, that the life that is going to be purified, that is going to be holy, is going to be a fight. It will be a battle. It will be all-out war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You will not wake up one day this side of heaven and say, boy, I'm taking the day off and God wants me to. Every day is a day to engage in battle for the glory of God in the purification of your soul. And you don't do that alone. Don't misunderstand me. Synergism means that God is at work in you doing the work as you yield to Him. We have to see that the life of a Christian seeking purity is a battle. Think about all of the places in Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 6, fight the good fight of faith. Romans chapter 8, put to death the deeds of the body. That's also in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Matthew chapter 26, he told the disciples, watch and pray. 2 Timothy chapter 2, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Battle language. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 18, wage the good warfare. J.C. Ryle wrote a book called Holiness. And if you've never read a book on holiness, Robbie and I recommend this one wholeheartedly to you. Robbie had to read this to get to go to Washington, D.C. I don't know that it was his favorite read ever, but it was my favorite task of assigning ever to him. Um, And there is a chapter in this book called The Fight that just eloquently lays out the reality of the Christian life warring against our flesh in the power of the Spirit to become like Jesus. There's nothing more defeating in that fight for some religionist to show up and tell you that you need a second blessing from God and until then there's nothing you can do to become holy. There's nothing worse than individuals saying, well, God wants some of His children to be holy, but not you. If you are born again at this very moment, here is your, your, verse, verse 3 is your declaration of war. Calling you to battle, to purify your life for the glory of the gospel. Ryle wrote in his work in the chapter on the fight. Where there is grace, there will be conflict. There is no holiness without a warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. We will all have lived a battle. Now, now how do I do this? Well, the first thing that we have to understand when we come to verse 3 is that there is purify in the verb form and there's purify in the adjective form. And we have to understand the differences between the two. Jesus is connected to the adverb, the positional, He is pure. And we have the responsibility of living in the verb, the purifying ourselves, in fighting the good fight to come into Christ's likeness. The way that we do this is by seeking to be like Jesus. Consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you know why the church is so discouraged in her pursuit of holiness today? Because she is so evacuated of her understanding of doctrine. She doesn't know how to be holy because she doesn't know the fullness of who Jesus is. And that is the real weapon of our warfare, is to doctrinally understand who the author and finisher of our faith is. We don't don't seek after holiness to gain favor from others. We seek after holiness as we look to Christ and we see Him as He is beautiful and majestic and splendid and the only one that we really want to follow in this world such that we would give up everything we own and our lives and our families if it means we get to follow Him. 
We must seek to know him and be conformed into his image. To be fashioned. Think about that. That God has redeemed us from the fall. That we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins have now been made alive unto Christ. And we can see Him as He is. And we can pursue Christ's likeness, which is the same thing as holiness. And we can wage the good warfare, being conformed into His image. That we would be like Him. That He would mold us. There's another interesting mountaintop story that finishes out with the molding of something, and that is the narrative that you'll well remember in Exodus chapter 32. When Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he receives the law, and he comes down and what does he find? He finds that Aaron the priest has molded a golden calf so that the people can worship according to the dictates of their own heart. And did you hear did you hear what Moses asks Aaron when he comes down from the mountaintop and the Bible says that his anger was red hot He's ticked y'all And he says this Moses said to Aaron What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them And Aaron said let not your anger uh, let not the anger of my lord burn hot you know the people that they are set on e- that their hearts are set on evil for they said to me make us gods who shall go before us can i tell you something there's an indictment that Aaron gives of himself in his response you know these people are evil well then you also Aaron have to know that these people are evil and so if they come to you and in their hearts they say pastor Aaron preach to us a god that looks like the gods that we've been used to for centuries then what should you do, Aaron? Should you just count out to them and say, okay, let's collect the jewelry and make the idol? No. In fact, Moses gets to the heart of it. If you really love these people, you wouldn't give them the God that they want. You would speak to them of the God who truly is. Not that God would be conformed into the image that you're comfortable with, but that you would be conformed into the image that bears out His glory. Pastors who proclaim a Jesus that you're comfortable with ultimately in the final analysis hate your soul and generally love your check. Let us aim for all that Christ is in this place. Let us aim for the doctrines that men and women have given their blood and everything of their lives for. Let us not think low thoughts of Jesus, but let us aim for the high calling that we have to see Jesus for who He is in all of His glory and the doctrines that have been handed down through the centuries that we might be conformed into the image of the only begotten Son of God. The reason we are so discouraged in our Christian life, and if you're sitting there this morning discouraged, I want you to know being in this text was a great discouragement in some sense as I look to myself. Because I realize I'm not holy in so many areas. Because there, I am confounded by the reality that God would ever save me and much, much less call me into ministry. And yet I'm heartened by this reality. That my calling to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be sanctified and to grow into holiness is not based on anything in me. It's based on God and His glory alone. So beloved, if you, if you want to wage the good fight of faith, That doesn't just mean kind of tripping through life, believing against belief that you might end up somewhere. Fighting the good fight of faith is beholding Christ for who He is that you might live like Him. To fight this fight, we must set our minds on things that are above. Colossians chapter 3. Set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are of the earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. Have you ever heard the phrase that someone is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? I think that's a lie straight out of the pit of hell. Do you know what I think that statement's aiming at though? It's people who have misconceived, they don't understand understand what glory actually is. They're individuals who have been sold a version of heaven that is just the earth cleaned up a little bit. 
They, they've been sold a, a picture of heaven that is just about not having illness and having streets of gold and, and, and little puffy clouds to set on in eternity. That's not what we're headed for. We are headed for glory where we will behold the face of Christ for all eternity. R.C. Sproul talks in his book on holiness about this dream that he has had uh, throughout his lifetime repeatedly that he got to heaven and I believe it's his father that he meets when he's at the gates of heaven. And he asks his dad, can you take me to go see the glory? And his father responds, oh, R.C., his glory is everywhere. It permeates the whole world and eternity to come. And so we become useless in an earthly sense this side of heaven because we don't right, rightly, doctrinally understand glory on the other side. We see dimly, Paul tells us. And so we must study and we must seek to discern truth from error. We must look to Jesus and set our minds on glory and wage this good warfare. We must desire that our lives would not be spent merely building up intellectual religious empires, but lives that genuinely long to see glory. Friends, if we're really going to seek after glory, we're going to do it because it's just natural outflow of knowing where we're going, but we also are going to seek after holiness because we have this in verse 28 set before us. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. What, what John is saying there is that we want to live our lives in the here and now knowing that every moment counts as we live for His glory alone, seeking to be like Him, that when we are called to stand and give an account of our lives, we won't have to shrink back and say, I've squandered all of it. Aim for glory. And there's also something in the just penumbra of, of this text that we have, to, we have to conceive of, and that is glory's coming. And it may even just be tomorrow. It, it, it may be a breath away for some of us. Time is short. So don't have the kind of view on the world that says, you know what? Yo, what, it, what is it? YOLO, I think is what kids say. I'm getting to the point where I now say what kids say. That's real encouraging. Um, <laughs> you only live once. And that is do everything in the here and now that will bring you satisfaction and joy. Because you'll be old one day and then you can focus on holiness. That's not what John says. If you are a born again Christian, then you will one day stand in glory. Let every second of your life reflect that reality. Might we live lives for his honor and glory. And I want to close with something out of Ryle's as he, Ryle as he ends his chapter on the fight. And he speaks of, of one who seeks after truth with all of his heart in a valiant fight. And then living in light of that truth becomes fashioned into the likeness of Christ. He writes, let me conclude all, of the, all with the words of John Bunyan. In one of the most beautiful parts of Pilgrim's Progress, he is describing the end of one of his best and holiest pilgrims. After this, Bunyan writes, it was broadcast that Mr. Valiant for Truth was summoned by the same party that summoned all of the others. He's saying that Mr. Valiant for Truth, his life is over and he's being called home. And he had this word for a token that the summons was true. The pitcher that was broken at the fountain, Ecclesiastes 12 verse 2. When he understood it, he called for his friends and he told them. Then he said, I am going to my father's house. And though with great difficulty I have gotten to this point, yet now I do not regret all of my troubles that I have been at to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him who shall succeed me in my pilgrimage. And my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me. 
to be a witness for me that the day that he must come, uh, uh, that he must go home, excuse me, I'm going to start that part, that sentence. My marks and scars I carry with me to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles who will now be my rewarder. When the day that he must go home was come, many accompanied him to the riverside, in which as he went down, he said, O death, where is thy sting? And he went down deeper and he cried, O grave, where is thy victory? And so he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. Beloved, may our end be like this. May we never forget that without fighting, there can be no holiness while we live. And there will be no crown of glory when we die. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence acknowledging that so often we have thought lightly on this topic. Or we have been sold a perversion of holiness. God, would you guard the minds of these beloved saints from perverse versions of holiness? Would you help them not to just hold on to dead morality, but might their holiness issue forth from the faith that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ? Father, would you make our hearts burn to understand doctrine well, that we would live well. That we would live holy and righteous lives in this wicked and perverse generation. Not that we would ever think that we're better than our neighbor, but that we might bring you glory in spite of all that we are in and of ourselves. Father, would you give us the courage to bear the marks and scars in our body? Pursuing holiness won't leave us without those marks. But might we have joy knowing that being conformed to the image of Christ is far greater than escaping this life without bruising. Father, might you 